Hi, folks. We are so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Labor Day has traditionally been the start of election season in American politics for decades, though people start jostling for power months earlier. As we head towards the November midterms, we're taking a look at what's resonating with voters, where Democrats and Republicans stand with the electorate, and what the outlook is for control of the House and Senate. Joining me today is Anita Kumar, Politico's first ever senior editor of Standards and Ethics. Her focus is on political campaigns and election cycles and how both impact local, state, and federal government in the U.S. Kumar reported on the White House for Politico for nine years across Presidents Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Barack Obama. Hi, Anita. Hi, great to be back with you. So this is the time of year where a lot of voters start plugging into politics, even if they haven't beforehand. So what stands out to you about the midterm season? Well, I think that we are seeing a change, a shift a little bit just in these, you know, last few days and weeks. Um, You know, it was sort of assumed that Republicans would be able to win back Congress. And I think now it's we're not so sure about that. Uh, You know, conventional wisdom shows that they will probably win the House. um, But the Senate seems like a toss up. Some of my colleagues this week that are analyzing the races are talking about how it's possible that maybe Democrats will hold on. It's just really not sure. And so I think we're going to see a huge, huge fight, two months of, of fights here across the country as as they try to figure out who can control Congress or if there's a split. So, Anita, every election cycle has winners and losers, but they also have different issues that pop to the fore. And access to abortion is definitely one of those issues that is coming up in two-party politics. So um, another one, uh, we're going to circle back to abortion, but another issue that's coming to the fore is extremism. And so in his speech last week in Philadelphia, President Biden called out political violence and extremism. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. And President Biden also said this. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. So given what President Biden said in this big speech, and there's been some evidence that voters are now actually interested in threats to democracy as things that are just as important as, you know, the economy to them. How will his stance play in the midterms? Yeah, I think we saw President Biden give one of his most aggressive speeches to date as president. You know, this is something he talked about a lot during the campaign, his campaign in 2020. But when he came into office, he really didn't talk about this as much. He didn't really even want to mention Donald Trump's name, really, with the White House officials and and him. We didn't hear that. But I think he's ramped it up because of a couple reasons. One, exactly what you mentioned, which is that people are starting to really think about this. We've seen a lot of these January 6th trials. 
We've seen arrests. We've seen what's going on with uh, President Trump and the FBI and the various investigations. And I think President Biden realizes that people are talking about this and that this is something that Democrats should use as an election issue. It's about the rule of law. It's about democracy. And they feel like this could be a real way to get Democrats excited going out to the polls in November. So I think we're going to see him talk about these issues for the next couple months. And what are we seeing from the GOP side about how they are dealing with President Biden's speech and also with the ongoing set of indictments and legal inquiries into the former president and two advisors, including Steve Bannon? You know, you have a segment that is still defending Donald Trump who uh, are saying that this is a partisan uh, investigation. It's something that President Trump said when he was in office. It's something he's been saying out of office. Um, So we're hearing that. We do have a segment of the Republican Party that just doesn't want to talk about these things. And they're going back to some of these other issues, inflation and the costs uh, that Americans are facing around the country, uh, you know, when they're in the grocery store or at the gas pump. They want to talk about those issues. They want to talk about immigration, what's happening on the southern border. So we're seeing a little bit of both of those things. And it really depends on sort of what segment of the Republican Party you're talking about. And just in general, over the past four presidential terms, the party in control of the White House lawsuits in Congress, it's seen as this kind of benchmark of, you know, this this is what happens. The president's party loses votes in the midterms. And, you know, what's shaping up for this year, you know, with all the uncertainties? Yeah, you're exactly right. That's what we've come to expect. And we generally see, um, you know, uh, this is this is a little bit closer maybe than we've seen in some years. Of course, It's still pretty early. We've got the whole election cycle to go through, so anything can happen. But right now, the Republicans are expected to take back the House. You know, there was talk at one point that they might win 60 seats. I think that no one is talking about that right now. They're talking about maybe, you know, maybe 20 seats. They need about five seats. So it's very close right now in the House. You know, the Senate, it's been really interesting. It's a toss up at this moment. So, you know, it really just depends on a handful of key states. And we don't really know how those are going to go. What we're seeing is that Democrats who had been sort of a little bit down and out about their prospects are feeling a little bit better for a variety of reasons um, in the Senate. One of them is that some of the costs, the prices are going down, inflation's getting, the economy seems to be getting a little better. President Biden has helped uh, Democrats in in Congress pass some bills, so he's gotten some things done. And Republicans are also facing some weak candidates that they perhaps didn't expect in particular states that they're feeling like uh, they're not doing as well. So I wouldn't say that the Democrats are feeling good, but they are feeling a little bit better than they were probably a few months ago. They're feeling less bad. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, you know, here's an interesting case. Stacey Abrams running again for governor of Georgia. She spoke a bit on CNN recently about abortion rights and how important that is to politics today. This is health care. This is about a woman's right to control her body. This is about a woman's right to experience and determine her future. And that, for me, as, my, as a matter of faith, means that I don't impose those value systems on others. But more importantly, I protect her rights. I protect her humanity. Let's talk first about abortion, then about Stacey Abrams. So um, what has abortion done? You know, the Dobbs ruling, which essentially overturned Roe v. Wade. What has that done to the map? 
Yeah, it's it's been interesting to sort of see how this plays out across the country. I mean, what you're seeing is a lot of Republican-led states, Republican legislatures or Republican governors trying to move to restrict abortion and now having the essentially the permission to do so, right? They get to decide for themselves. And how you've seen politically, you've seen Democrats reacting, getting very uh, upset about that. They don't want that. And they're using that politically to say, look, if you want to change this, if you want to go back to the way things were, uh, if you want to elect people that are going to expand access to abortion instead of restrict it, you need to elect Democrats. So even obviously, though, this was not the ruling that Democrats wanted. They are trying to use it to their advantage politically to say, you know, get excited, get enthusiastic, come out to the polls and vote for these like minded people. So, um, you know, we've seen that a little bit around the country that Democrats feel like this could be working and they feel like this is going to be one of their major issues in November. Let's also turn to the race between uh, Stacey Abrams, who's running again against Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia. There are some new articles, including a big one in The New York Times, basically saying that she is not doing as well as expected, despite having a lot of supporters and a lot of fundraising. You know, what are you looking at in terms of the Georgia governor's race? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, Georgia is the state, I think, that people have been really looking at in the last uh, you know, cycle or two that's saying it's really going to, you know, it's going to turn blue, it's going to go Democratic. And there are definitely some inroads. We've seen that um, in some of these races, but the governor's race is still a tough hill to climb. It's going to be very difficult, you know, it, it, for her because sort of everything is going for him in terms of of the state and how this has been looking over, you know, decades, really. Um, so she's got more to do. And and you see people a little bit worried about that. Um, this is obviously the, the second time she's run statewide. And so this is going to be very difficult. And we're seeing some of that. Look, we've got the next couple months to see, though, how much money are they raising? You know, what kind of ads are they putting out there? I think this is really the moment in these next couple months where we're going to see what that operation looks like. And just in general, when you look at the country right now, you know, after two plus years of COVID after a lot of vicissitudes in the economy, you know, the great resignation and inflation, and then a reigning in of inflation, changes of interest rates that affect housing. When I rattle off a laundry list like that, what I see, Anita, is people changing where they're putting their attention. Sometimes they're really focused on the economy. Sometimes they're really focused on threats to democracy. And things have changed already in this midterm cycle based on where people are putting their attention. Do you think it's possible people's attention will continue to shift and that we may not have a clear map of um, what's going to motivate voter behavior? One of the things I found really interesting is that, uh, you know, at some point, even a couple of years ago, even at the beginning of the cycle, there were Democrats who who really thought that COVID was going to continue to be sort of the dominant issue. And of course, it is a huge issue in this country. People are still getting infected. We have variants. We have deaths. You know, we even have a new uh, vaccine that might be that's going to be available soon. So 
it is an issue, but but it does seem that a lot of America has turned the page. A lot of people are going back to school and going back to work and trying, at least in some ways, to go back to that pre-pandemic life. And so that's how we've seen other things sort of come to the forefront. And I think there's a realization from Democrats that that's not going to be the number one issue. You know, they need to talk about some of these issues we've been talking about, which is democracy, extremism, uh, you know, Republicans wanting to talk about inflation and immigration. So we're back to some of those other issues. And I think we've already seen a big shift um, in what those issues are over the last, over this cycle. And I think we're going to continue to see a shift. That was Anita Kumar, Politico's senior editor of Standards and Ethics. Coming up next, more with Politico senior editor Anita Kumar on the midterms and key races to watch. Plus, author Carmen Rita Wong on her new memoir, Why Didn't You Tell Me?, and her journey following her mother's death to uncover hidden truths about her family's origins. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just joining us, we're talking all things midterms with Anita Kumar, Politico's first ever senior editor of Standards and Ethics. With the 2022 midterms coming up and many questions about voter suppression, voter fraud, and the security of our nation's democracy, we wanted to get a high-level overview of what's on the horizon. We turn now to looking at some specific races and what they might mean for the general election in November. Let's continue our conversation. The New York Times recently declared that Pennsylvania is the center of the political universe when it comes to the midterms. Politico obviously has also been doing great coverage, and I am a subscriber to a whole bunch of your newsletters. And so Biden and Trump were both campaigning there recently. What's at stake in Pennsylvania, and what are you watching? Yeah, I mean, the fact that both Joe Biden and Donald Trump were there just shows you how incredibly important this state is. You know, this is an interesting one, and we've seen some different issues here. You know, Dr. Oz, the Republican, is very aligned with Donald Trump. So we're sort of looking at how that resonates in Pennsylvania and how Donald Trump still resonates there. Um, He's not doing so well, though. He's been struggling. He has not been doing well in the polls. And Republicans are hoping to narrow the race there by attacking the Democratic nominee, who's the Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Fetterman's had an interesting time here because obviously he's had some health issues. He's been um, not able to campaign as much as he wanted. He had to sit things out. And so there is some worry that even though he's been doing pretty well in the polls, that he hasn't been out enough campaigning. And so we're kind of seeing a couple different things with both of these men. And it's going to be very interesting to sort of see Uh, what's going to happen. I think this is one of those ones that's going to, we say, you know, everything's going to be close and you never know, but this one is one that people do think might come down to the wire. Let's go to Alaska. So the former vice presidential candidate and governor Sarah Palin recently lost a special election for the only House seat in Alaska to Mary Peltola, a Democrat who served in the state legislature for 10 years. Peltola and Palin and quite possibly a second GOP candidate are also going to have a rematch in the fall because that was a special election. So here's Peltola talking about her heritage. I am Yupik. I'm very proud to be Yupik, but I'm a lot more than just my ethnicity. And I want to really share the values of our region of working together and working collaboratively and holding each other up. I want to 
hopefully really bring those values to Washington, D.C. Sarah Palin has a lot of name recognition. I remember being at the RNC when she was on stage as the vice presidential candidate. Is this more of a one-off or a sign of changing party affiliations for Alaska? You know, Alaska always talks about being so independent. They have an independent streak. um, And so you never really know. I I will say that Sarah Palin did lose. But remember, she's back on the ballot again. Both of those women are. Um, They were both trying to fill uh, a House seat just until uh, till the end of the year, essentially. And now they're trying for a two year term. So anything can happen again. I do think that Democrats are cheering what happened in Alaska. They say, look, this is somewhere that, uh, you know, maybe Democrats can make some inroads. Someone who campaigned on sort of being someone who can be bipartisan, that can work with both parties, that can bring things home to Alaska, that it, that, that people in Alaska aren't looking for someone uh, like Sarah Palin, who got the endorsement of Donald Trump, someone that was so polarizing. I don't know if it's if we're ready to say Things have changed. I think we need to see what happens in November. So in Florida, the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, is running against Democrat Charlie Crist. And Florida is generally considered a red state. Um, Crist has played on both sides of the partisan aisle. What What's going on there? Yeah, I'm watching this closely because this is my old stomping grounds. I used to work as a reporter in Florida. Um, you know, I, I actually covered Charlie Crist. He was... It, way back in the day. So, you know, Charlie Crist is a or was a member of Congress. He just resigned uh, to focus on the race. He's running again statewide. He has lost in the past. He's running against Ron DeSantis, who is very much a Republican that a lot of people are saying is in the mold of Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump likes to believe that he actually helped Ron DeSantis get elected. Um, he was losing and then then he won, basically. So this is something that we're watching very closely, partly because, of course, we want to see what happens. We want to see who the next governor is, but also because Ron DeSantis is being talked about a lot for 2024 for the presidential race. Mm-hmm. And we haven't really talked about that. So much of what happens in the midterms, it lets us know what might be happening for 2024. I mean, in a couple ways, we're going to see key issues around the country that resonate with voters, but we're also going to see which People win statewide races that might run in 2024. And Ron DeSantis is definitely one of those people. He is running for re-election, but there are a lot of people that say he really wants to run for president one day. And we're going to sort of see, uh, you know, what his staying power is, if, if he can do this and, and what that race is going to look like. Let's move ahead with Donald Trump, the former president, um, who has a number of different legal questions pending, not only about whether someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will end up being a better candidate for the GOP for the 2024 elections than Donald Trump, but also about the Mar-a-Lago revelations uh, in terms of top secret and secret documents. Do you see that affecting the midterms? And if so, how? You know, this is a very, very key question, but I tend to think that the people that like Donald Trump think that the investigation is partisan or, as he says, a witch hunt, and they are going to dismiss it. And those that hate Donald Trump are going to see it as this is exactly what they said would happen, right? So I don't know if anyone's mind is going to be changed because the country is so split. We saw that in the last you know, couple presidential elections. And I don't know if this is going to change anyone's mind. Now, you did mention there's a number of investigations. I think 
this could really be a game changer if we see what happens, right? There's a couple months to go and we don't know exactly what the FBI and other law enforcement officials are going to do. Uh, you know, are they going to charge more people? Are they going to try to hold President Trump accountable for what they said was, you know, wrongdoing? We don't know. We know that law enforcement, particularly federal law enforcement, tries not to interfere with elections. Famously, they tried but then did interfere in the 2016 election with Hillary Clinton and, and her emails. So we don't really know what they're going to do, but I think um, it could impact it depending on what law enforcement decides to do over the next couple months. And so I just want to wrap up with a little something about you. You were a White House correspondent for many years and you reported on President Trump's re-election campaign, Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. With all of that experience under your belt, how has covering politics changed over the past decade, you know, from your perspective? What's different? You know, it's funny to think this, but at the time, covering President Obama and covering his re-elect, so that's when I came into covering the White House in 2012, it really felt like the country was split that, you know, Democrats and Republicans and, and people across the country couldn't get along, that they were, things were so partisan, uh, they were so polarized. But I think that over, you know, sort of the last decade, I've seen that it, it's gotten more so. You know, I just couldn't have imagined mm-hmm. really how much it has. And I think part of that is the candidates and the people that are out there, you know, who ran and who became president, Donald Trump, obviously, um, as we mentioned before, you either love him or you hate him. So I think that's part of it. I think it's also sort of social media has taken off in a way um, that we didn't couldn't really imagine then. Of course, there was social media and President Obama really loved to say that he was one of the first or if not the first president that really made use of social media. But it's really taken off in a way that now people are reading and seeing things. They're only sort of looking at um, things they agree with. Right. You can catch up on the news, but only read things that that are like-minded, right? So you're not seeing sort of both sides. And I think what I've seen is just things get more polarizing, more disinformation, uh, more people sort of not understanding the full picture of what's going on. Yeah. Well, Anita Kumar, just so grateful for your insights and thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me. That was Anita Kumar, former White House correspondent and Politico senior editor of Standards and Ethics. Coming up next, more with writer Carmen Rita Wong on her new memoir, Why Didn't You Tell Me?, and her work on uncovering her own family's histories following the passing of her mother. You're listening to Our Body Politic. This is Our Body Politic. We just finished talking about the landscape around the 2022 midterm elections. We are going to be covering that all fall. And now we are turning to a new memoir written by author Carmen Rita Wong, Imagine growing up feeling like you never really fit into your own family to then later discover that that little voice, your gut instinct, was right, that your own family kept you in the dark about key details of your identity and heritage. That's what happened to writer Carmen Rita Wong, who in her latest book, Why Didn't You Tell Me?, shares her deeply personal journey, an investigation into her past after discovering that her family and even her race are not what she's been told her whole life. Formerly, Carmen Rita Wong was co-creator and television host of CNBC's On the Money and a national advice columnist. Today, she joins us to talk about her new memoir and how race and culture in America shape our identities. Welcome, Carmen. 
Hi, Farai. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, this book is amazing. I come from a line of writers. My grandmother was a writer. My mother was a writer. And my grandmother had an unfinished memoir because she said, I can't, you know, finish this book until Emma is dead. And Emma was her mother. But even once her mother died, she never published a memoir. And she had a complicated relationship with her own mother. You go there. You know, you go through the good, the bad, the ugly, the funny, all of it. What gave you the strength to say, I'm just going to talk about things as they are? Oh, my goodness. Let's just say it took years and years of fortifying myself first. I've been thinking about and wanting to write a memoir for decades, um, but I finally did it partially because it just, I felt this clock ticking, which the ticking got, of course, faster when my brother became sick. You know, folks don't live too long in my family. And I really felt also that things in the outside world, the country we live in, were shifting quite a bit. I just said, this is the time. I do think there's a really big gift, though, by the way, in, in hitting a certain milestone, as in the 5-0. Mm-hmm. Yep. Both of us <laughs> have been say, there. All right. Now or never. And what are you going to do? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's get to a key revelation. There's many revelations, but this one is one that's critical. The man you thought that your father was not actually your father, and you found that out at 31. Take us there. Mm -hmm. And that's not even the biggest one, but the biggest surprise, by the way. (laughs) There's even more after that. I thought that was it. This book is Um, full of many surprises. Let me tell you, I thought that that was it at 31. I really did. My mother was sick with cancer. I hadn't been speaking to her for a couple of years. We had a very, very difficult relationship. This, she was a very damaged woman. Um, so I don't want to give too much away, but she was sick. She was, um, she had cancer and my stepfather and her had divorced and he was dating someone. And I guess he told this lady, uh, the secret. Mm-hmm. And this lady said, isn't she dying? Like, you can't let this, her take this to the grave. So my stepfather was the one who ended up telling me that I wasn't Poppy Wong's kid. Wow. That was devastating because I'd never, you know, he said he was my father. Now, unfortunately, you know, there was another surprise that happened 10 years later. Um, I never felt a part of that family, that second family. Mm-hmm. I always felt connected to my brother. So it was really devastating to suddenly lose that connection to my brother, which I I decided I didn't lose anything, God damn it. Um, But to lose being Chinese. Yes. That was devastating. I can't tell you how much it ripped my heart out. Because when we talk about race and being a race, right? Yes. It's the outward appearance, sure, it's how you raise, but it's part of being a part of a community, Mm -hmm. a culture, a people with a deep history. I always felt a connection to that. Poppy Wong was was always in my life. Mm -hmm. He recently passed away. And after my brother passed away, of course, I had to take care of him. And, you know, as you're managing, you know, take care of him and his sickness as well and bury him. And it's that still today is it is my father yes i may not be chinese 
but I am a Wong. Mm-hmm. Yep. A hundred percent. And that's that. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, it's funny. I've had some people ask me like, oh, you're going to change your last name? And I'm like, that's, that's a ridiculous question. Mm-hmm. Because it's like saying to someone who's adopted and finds their birth parents, oh, you're going to change your name to your birth parents? Well, of course not. Yeah. This is the person who was raised as my parent. It's connected to a race of people, sure. But what I'm connected to is the family and my history for the first 31 years of my life and being a Wong and that's it. I'm a Wong. Yeah. I may not be biologically Chinese, but I'm a Wong. Why don't you yeah. lay out your origin story for me? If you were to tell people what this book yeah. is about, what's, what is it about to you? Well, I'll tell you overall, it's about truth. Mm-hmm. Truth in answering the question, who am I? Having other people in your life answer the question, who am I? Who are you? Um, so it's that search for the truth. I wrote it a little bit like a page turner, a thriller, a mystery, because that's how my life has lived out with surprises at every corner. Um, but I'll also say it's a story about mothers and daughters. It's a story about identity. Been a lot of stories about whether it's adoption or in vitro when people are looking for their parents, they don't have the added element of race mm-hmm. thrown in. Yep. Let's just say I started out my life in, in Harlem, uptown Manhattan, right? With a large Dominican family of all colors and a Chinese father. Ended up my mother's second marriage to an Anglo-American in New Hampshire. And the shock. One of the most diverse states 80s. in the nation. Sorry. just Listen for us. <laughs> oh, you should, oh, you should have seen what it was like in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. I mean, we were Martians, I, you know, moon people and not treated very well. Can you just tell the story about your family driving up to the house? So my new stepfather decided he had to teach my mother how to drive because she was pregnant with their first child. And my brother and I, us little brown kids, were in the back seat. And it was nighttime because it was after work. And he's teaching her how to drive in our neighborhood. We are just a few doors down from our own house. And we get pulled over by the police. The neighbors had called the police on us because, uh, quote, Puerto Ricans are casing the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot of lessons that day. I learned, you know, we were not welcome. I learned, you know, fear of the police. Then, of course, as early as when I had my CNBC show and I had to drive into New Jersey, I was getting pulled over by police in the immigration sweeps. And then there was a time the school had to take the bus to a field trip in Montreal and Quebec and immigration stopped the bus because of me. You know, I used to say to my brother because, you know, he married a black Guyanese wife, my wonderful sister-in-law, and he ended up living in Prince George County, Maryland, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, the the, majority wealthiest black county uh, in the country. And he resented our time in New Hampshire a lot. And I said this to him, you know, yes, we can be angry and bitter about it and sad, but also to understand that there is how we learned how this country is run, Mm. who runs it, how it works. And that gave us some advantages advantages in life. Yeah. um, And sense of understanding how to navigate it. That was author and financial journalist Carmen Rita Wong talking to us about her latest book, a memoir entitled, Why Didn't You Tell Me? Coming up next, 
More with writer Carmen Rita Wong on her new memoir, Why Didn't You Tell Me?, and her work on uncovering her own family's histories following the passing of her mother. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with writer Carmen Rita Wong, who in her latest book, a memoir entitled Why Didn't You Tell Me, shares her journey to uncover truths behind what she's been told about her identity and family tree early in life. Carmen Rita Wong is former co-creator and television host of CNBC's On The Money and also used to be a national financial advice columnist. So to continue with this, you know, we have Carmen Rita Wong, who is as a child, a Chinese-Dominican girl. Tell us a little bit about Poppy Wong and, you know, how you and your brother would stroll through these Chinese restaurants. And then I want to hear about your abuela and your Dominican family, too. Give us a sense of where you were circulating as a child. Oh, the contrast. Boy, that prepared me for a lot in life. Um, So Poppy, as we called him, Poppy would come pick us up because my parents split when I was young. But he would come pick us up every weekend couple times a week, actually. But usually on the weekends, it was dress up time because you take us to the fancy Chinese restaurants. So that mm-hmm. in Chinatown, you know, you have the restaurants with the duck and the ribs in the window. And I love that. And that was like a normal weekday. And then on the weekends, it was the very, you know, gold and red and expansive Chinatown restaurants with the dais. Mm-hmm. And on the dais would be his uh, quote unquote buddies. Um, Poppy operated on the other side of the law. <laughs> so these were gangsters, which he was as well. And his boss is the Dons, right? So he would bring his two little brown children mm-hmm. who did not look Chinese at all. Yeah. And parade us through. We were all dressed up. My abuela would dress us up in like our finest. I had go-go boots. I had a, uh, a little fur remnant coat from her seamstress job with Oscar de la Renta. She'd take remnants and sew these little calico coats for me. Um, and he would just bring us through, and he was loud. He made friends with everyone, you know, and he'd talk to everybody and bring us up there very proudly. And that was very formative. If you think about, like, what that communicates to a child. Yeah. Um, my grandmother dressing us up in our best and, and taking the time and attention to make things for me. Poppy, though, his love was quite um, interesting (laughs) and Mm. difficult. Uh, He was not necessarily a nice person. But him presenting us in such a way, it was very formative. It really, you know, gave me a sense of deserving space, right? Yeah. And then at home, it was the Dominican life. We have our cousins who are also Dominican Chinese across the street. I mean, I'm telling you, we had a whole family of dozens within a four block radius. And Abuelo, my abuelo, my grandfather, co-owned the cleaners and tailors on the corner, 125th and Broadway, which is now a Starbucks, people. Um, (laughs) But uh, he owned that for a long time. And, you know, it was just a loud high energy, you know, uh, delicious food, lots of love. But the one place that was a vacuum was my mother. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a black hole that was missing a lot. 
it was, it's funny, I mentioned the book that I don't remember her voice very much. I remember her being there, but I don't remember her saying anything. She was a, a, a bit detached. And I forgive her for that because she was married off for immigration reasons at the mm -hmm. age of 19 to this Chinese gangster. And let's talk about proximity to whiteness. Like I got verbal butt whooping on Clubhouse one day when I was talking about, you know, uh, African and Black American relations, and and people just really came at me um, about. They said, "Well, you have the proximity to whiteness where you can earn money." Basically, talking about Black American anti-African sentiment, which mm -hmm. is true mm -hmm. oh, yep. among some people. And I'm half African, half Black American, and so mm -hmm. that concept influenced how you even came to exist because your father's. Mm -hmm proximity to whiteness as a Chinese man was factored into how your mother was steered to marry him. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yes. Yes. I mean, listen, the layers and layers of racism and class, of course, in the Caribbean, you know, when you have such a strong African-American indigenous population, then you have travelers and immigrants like the Chinese or you end up with this kind of system of who's at the top. Well, who's at the top? White folks, of course, right? Um, then it Asian. So in my family, Dominicans feel like it felt like, and my my grandfather felt like Chinese was the next thing closest to being white mm -hmm. because you know Asians who he knew in the Dominican Republic, oh, they had the stereotype of they worked hard, they believed in education, you know, like they shared some of the things that their idea of white Americans have. Now here's the funny thing: you mentioned proximity to whiteness. There was that, and that's the reason why he married off his daughters to Chinese, even though they were gangsters. <laughs> but then my mother marries an Anglo-American and talk about proximity to whiteness. That's the reason why I learned how to manage my money mm, at 12 years old and had yeah. a savings account at 12 and, you know, read the Wall Street Journal with him. And, uh, he, you know, that's the reason why I had such a career in that space and understood these things. Even, you know, when I was an editor at Money Magazine, and this was in late 90s, 2000s, I, I said, you know, why are we not in this space, brown and black people? Like, why should, you know, white folks be the only people with access to this knowledge? It felt like some kind of a club. So I decided to use my proximity to whiteness to move forward in a field that we did not exist in. But I don't know if I would have had that ability and gumption and entitlement if I hadn't lived in that atmosphere. Let's talk a little bit about Alex, if that's okay. You know, your brother, and you say, folks don't live too long in my family. And that just really hit me in the feels. And your brother was someone who was really important to you and died too young, and you dedicate the book to him. Who was he and is he in that global spiritual sense? He was the first and the only person to really see me and yeah. love me in all forms. He was the person, I would say, even more so than my parents that I was close to, that I had a closer bond with. He was that big brother who protected me in my youth, who I fought with in my teens um, and then, you know, called and talked to every single day for a very long time. What was really special about him is the only relationship where like we could have an argument and in 30 seconds later be like, did you eat? 
<laughs> what, do you what do you want for lunch? It is such a piece. Talk about fortitude to have somebody like that in your life. Mm -hmm. And we told the truth to each other about things. He really was my rock and uh, my wonder twin, as I say in the book. Yeah. And in addition to your brother, a passel of sisters. And you were put in a position to have to mother your siblings. What was it like to have to step into the role of mothering people when you were not a mother? You know, I sometimes dare not even think about that. It's such a, a painful thing. I'll tell you this. Parentification of children is one of the greatest forms of theft mm, mm -hmm, of love, mm -hmm. right, in life. I was robbed of a childhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was taking care of newborn babies by the time I was, you know, 10. I was left home alone yeah, with them. Yeah, yeah which is just way too much responsibility. I can, let's just say I've been in therapy for many years. The amount of anxiety, it's you know, the anxiety, right? Oh yeah, girl. I mean, this is what enabled me to actually do this. If you put that much responsibility on a child, it's just, it's too much. Also, I was not able to be a sister to my sisters. Mm -hmm. It robbed me of a relationship, of a sibling relationship with my sisters. So, we can't have a relationship like I had with my brother. Yeah. And I mourn that so, so much, I can't tell you. Yeah. And then you end up being kind of like the mom where it's like, um, I love you more than you love me. And also I was a kid. You're not the best parent when you're 11. Yep. You yep. are upset because you can't hang out, talk to your friends, listen to a record. You have to change diapers and help crying babies and all of that. So, yeah, I wasn't the best caretaker either because I would get angry and resentful. I did my best. Um, you did a but lot. I really, really, I did a lot for I. Let's just, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> and you now have your own child who's an incredible human yeah. being who I've, ha I've had the pleasure of getting to know a little bit and look forward to seeing over the years. So you, you, you have processed a lot and moved through many different things. Yes. And, and she, you know, having had that experience when I was young meant that I was adamant that I was going to wait yeah. to have a child and I was going to have one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you did. And I also was going to work on myself so that I did not repeat my childhood or repeat the way my mother mothered. Yeah. I was determined to do it differently. So oh, you're doing it. And you do talk in this book about what it's like to have to go through these changes of self-identification and still hold the center of who Carmen Rita Wong is. And so who's Carmen Rita Wong now? <laughs> oh, for I. Well, you know, I am a constantly morphing thing. And if only because not just the outside world and its influence and my family's secrets, which keep changing as to who I actually come from, but because I'm constantly working on myself. Mm -hmm. And so what I'll say now is I've endured also a lot of tragedy the past couple of years, losing my brother, losing my father, my, my daughter has long COVID. Um, I had an accident earlier this year, um, severe accident. So I am definitely at a space where I am more fully and truly myself than I've ever been. It means making my circles smaller. It means focusing and caring on things that are very important, really important, and knowing what that is like to me. 
it means that I am still in, in my mind, you know, very much um, Chino Latina, but much more Latina. I've always been much more Latina because of my mother. Um, and being a great support to my nieces and a great mom. You know, my nieces are black Chinese. They're black Wongs. My daughter is Blanquita. She's white Latina. I have all of these things. Um, and I am all of these things. So that's where I'm at now, today, Fry. Where are you at as a creator? You know, this book about your complicated family came out of you being a creator and you putting your voice out in the world. And when I look at the picture of you at, on The Real Cost of Living, you're doing like, you know, if I may be... A you performance? Know, yeah. You know, it's like you with yep. a certain type of hair, like, hey, I'm the cute yep. financial advisor. I'll tell you how to manage your money. And this, to me, is a different Carmen Rita Wong, who is, you know, you are stepping into your destiny as a creator. Yeah. So yeah. who who are you now after all of this? I am what I've always wanted to be since I was a kid. A writer. Mm hmm and a different kind of performer. Let's put it this way. I no longer perform as a version of myself. I will no longer do that. I did that because um, I was told I had to do that. I had to straighten my hair. I had to be a certain weight. I had to wear certain clothes in order to succeed, right? In that majority white world. I did that because that was what I was told, you know, my mother raised me with that whole kind of immigrant, you know, doctor, lawyer, or MBA. That's it. You have no choice. You can't be a writer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can't be an, an actor or performer. You can't do these things because I didn't work so hard so you could do that stuff. Right. So I lived the life she wanted me to live. I lived a life I thought I had to live. And now, finally, when I decided that's it, I'm doing this book, I'm selling this book the way I want to write it which was a struggle. It ended up in the best place and it just solidified that I'm on the right track of just being myself. And for I to have this, you know, done with Crown, to have the New York Times review it so well, it just, it's amazing. The validation is incredible at 51 years old. Who knew? 51 years <laughs> young. Hello. You know, like I said, people pass young in my family. Every year is a gift, every bit of it. You know, we've talked about a lot of things, but there's further adventures in your book, and that's DNA. And I don't want to talk about your revelations from DNA, but I'll give you a little bit from my family. Um, yeah. Different members of my family, not me, have taken DNA tests, and someone came back with a result saying, we're third cousins, and one of your relatives apparently passed through X country, and I'm a result of that from a one-night stand with my mom. Oh, <laughs> and I have been trying to figure out who Person X was. I have some theories, but, you know, in this book, there's some <laughs> final plot twists that come from DNA. Without talking about that, to leave people with mystery. Without, without giving it away. Right. Yeah. What do you think of the whole level of revelations about who we are that also comes from DNA? You know, good, bad, indifferent, all of the above? Lots of feelings. Lots of feelings. I'm really glad I did it. You know, my brother and I did it um, because we're kind of science geeks and also because of these stories in my family. And of, of course, I'm really glad I did it because it showed me the truth. You know, mm -hmm. I believe that science can show you a lot of things. 
But I do, you know, in talking to people about this part, it's interesting. They don't want to know. They've heard in the family that maybe their grandparent had a child with someone else. And then maybe this person's their cousin and they don't want to know. Yeah. I got lucky. You know, I knew that trying to contact this new family that was a revelation could end up badly. Mm -hmm. Rejection Mm -hmm. could end up with rejection. You know, I think everybody has to make this choice themselves. I do believe that my mother lied for many reasons. And I I go through that in the book. And one of them is just the inability to have choices. Mm. Really, all this new DNA stuff, it really comes to a head with patriarchy and politics and, Mm. you know, uh, feminism. So I don't look at it as separate. It's science, but it's anthropology, like, and it's culture. Um, And it has a lot of implications. So tread carefully, my friends. Yeah. Be careful what you want to know about your fams. Tread carefully. (laughs) Yeah. but But it's also to live in truth is brave and beautiful. And you have done that. And it seems like you're good with your choices, you know, to not turn away from who you are and who your family is and to love expansively across your family, including all the people who have different deficits, as we all do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Um, yes, I, I got to tell you, living in truth is freedom. Mm-hmm. It's absolute freedom. Yeah. Secrets and lies serve the person who is doing the lying. Um, and it doesn't serve yourself to lie to yourself either. Yeah. So, you know, get to know yourself, who you really are, that inner voice that you've always had. And living in that has just been a tremendous freedom. And I continue to try to to listen to that. You know, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And definitely your book is just full of life wisdom on so many different levels about how to be a human, how to be a woman, how to be a child, how to be a parent. Thank you so much, Carmen Rita Wong. Thank you, Farai. That was author and financial journalist Carmen Rita Wong talking to us about her latest book, a memoir entitled, Why Didn't You Tell Me? Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm host and executive producer for Rai Chidea. Nina Spensley is co-executive producer. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Tracy Caldwell and Bridget McAllister are our bookers and producers. Emily J. Daly and Steve Lack are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Kelsey Kudak is our fact checker. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Mike Gaylor, Carter Martin, and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.